you'd like to open your Bibles to the book of Job, we're going to be continuing our sermon series through this book. We are at Job 33. Well over the halfway point, we are in the Elihu speeches. So this is Job 33. We'll be looking at the entire chapter, 1 through 33, page 439 of the ESV Pew Bibles. Let's go to the Lord prayer together. Heavenly Father, as we come before you in worship now, we come to your word, to the reading, to the authoritative proclamation of your word. Father, we ask that your blessing would accompany the reading and preaching of your word. We also ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes so that we can see the true meaning of this passage and also be able to apply it. Not simply look at the word and then walk away and forget what it says, but to see it and have it penetrate into our hearts and that we would hear and obey. So Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a family of four. It was a mom, dad, and two children, and it was February, and it was near Valentine's Day, and it was a Saturday, and Mom had to run a few errands, so she left, and Dad called the kids together, and he said, hey, let's make a Valentine's Day card for Mom. And the kids said, yeah, let's, let's do that. So we, they've got the red and pink and white construction paper, and the scissors and the glue and the markers and the red glitter. And they got it all together, and they were in the living room at the coffee table, and Dad showed them how to fold the paper in half and cut out a heart, and then when they opened it, it was a whole heart, so they took turns doing that. After a while, they got all their cards together, just in time, and Mom came back, and the kids presented their, their Valentine's Day cards to Mom, and she said, oh, thank you so much, and she showed appreciation, and she gave him a hug and a, and a kiss, and she really appreciated the gesture, and then she walked through the living room, and she said to her husband, you kind of made a mess in the living room. There's glitter in the carpet. And the husband said, oh, no problem. And he went to the, the closet and got a handheld vacuum. And he, and he kind of got the glitter that was on the coffee table and then tried to get the carpet, but it wasn't really coming out. So he put that back in the closet and he got out the full-sized floor vac and he, he brought that out and he turned it on and, and went over the spots a couple of times and it got some of it, but it wasn't getting all of it. So he turned the dial on, on the vacuum to bare floor. He thought maybe it was too high up. So he turned it all the way down, and it still wasn't getting it. So he put that vacuum away, and then he disappeared into the garage. A few minutes later, he came out with this oversized multi-gallon shop vac, and he put it on the, the living room floor, and he, he turned it on, and of course this motor makes a lot of noise, and he would take the, the end of the hose and he would just go up and down over the carpet and let it, let it suck up. And that was making the alternating you know, noise as the motor worked hard and then it free-flowed again. And all of this noise caused his wife to walk in from the other end of the house and she made hand motions across the noise, says, what are you doing? And he turned off the, the power and he said, well... The other vacuums weren't cutting it, so I had to resort to extreme measures. And he said, it's working. And so she said, OK, 
carry on. And he vacuumed up all the red glitter. God sometimes uses extreme measures or a series of extreme measures to get our attention and to turn us from sin. When the lower powered tools of gentle nudges and subtle signs aren't getting the job done, God can and does turn to extreme measures to get our attention. We're going to see Elihu talk about two of God's extreme measures that God used to speak to Job. We're also going to see a clear picture of Jesus as our mediator and savior. I would say even more clear than Job 19, 1925, for I know that my Redeemer lives. We see Jesus in this passage. And then finally, the takeaway for us will be focusing on listening and responding when God uses extreme measures in our own life. So let's look at Job 33, 1 through 33. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will, not, he will answer none of men's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream... In a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near to the pit, and his life to those who bring death. If there be an angel, if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he might be lighted with the light of life. 
Pay attention, O Job, listen to me, be silent, and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me, speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me, be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. This chapter starts with Elihu putting Job at ease. Now, if you recall last week, chapter 32, we were introduced to Elihu, and remember he burned with anger at his three friends and at Job. And we talked about why Elihu was angry. Elihu was angry with Job uh, because at several points it was clear through Job's speeches that he had indeed crossed a line. In, in his lamenting and crying out in pain, he had implied that God somehow needed to answer for his behavior in striking Job with suffering and calamity. Elihu was angry with Job's three friends because they did not answer Job. They did not speak correctly about God, and they did not rebuke Job uh, for his speech about God. And even though Elihu was younger than anyone else, he felt compelled to interrupt and inject himself into the conversation because he was being led by the Spirit of God and was delivering the words of God. So the last chapter was really the introduction. This was uh, introducing us to Elihu and showing us why he was angry at Job and, and why he was going to speak. Now, at the beginning of 33, with all those preliminary remarks out of the way, now he's going to begin the formal address to Job. This is the content of what he wants to say to Job. This is what we see in chapter 33. Verse 1, But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. So he's signaling to Job, now I'm going to begin. Now you're going to hear what I have to say to you and my message. And he calls, his, he calls Job by name. And look at that. It says, hear my speech, O Job, which the other friends do not. In all the things that the, the three friends said to Job, they never called him by name. And this suggests that, that Elihu is, is expressing Job with personal concern, unlike his three friends who, remember, they really, they, they started off okay, but they treated Job with increasing hostility. And, and they almost made him seem like he was inferior to them. Instead, Elihu begins with personal connection. And that seems to be an overall strategy to, to, to speak to him in a disarming language. He, he wants to put Job at ease. I'm not the enemy. Although he will confront Job, he comes as a friend. Verse 3, uprightness of my heart. What my lips know, they speak sincerely. I'm not against you. I'm seeking your good. I don't have an agenda here. You can trust me. I'm, I'm speaking sincerely. Verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. We talked about that last week a little bit. Uh, not only is, is he saying, yes, God made me and, and the breath of God is in me, but he's also claiming inspiration. As we're going to see, he's speaking some words from God to Job. And then verse 5 says, answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. This is Elihu's way of saying, when I'm all done, if you have an answer for me, if you disagree with what I've been saying to you, please say something back to me. I'm, re I'm ready to listen. I welcome your answer and your response. And of course, Job did respond after all the other three friends had something to say. You remember, Job would not let falsehood stand. So every time his three friends brought something against him, he had something to say. He had a response. We're going to see with Elihu, it's a little different. Job does not respond after Elihu speaks. 
Verse 6 and 7, we have some more of that disarming language. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too is pinched off from a piece of clay. You see what he's saying here? He's saying, I'm a, I'm a man, just like you, Job. You don't have to be afraid. You, you, you have no need to fear. And that's significant because back in chapter 9, when Job was, was asking for an arbiter or for a mediator, to step in and act uh, as a buffer zone between him and God, he said this, Job 9 says this, let not dread of him terrify me, then I would speak without fear of him, meaning God. And so Elihu is saying, look, I'm, I'm like you. I'm just a man, there's no need to be afraid. Even though I'm going to bring you a word from God, there's no need to fear. In other words, he's telling him, same team. Same thing. I'm not here to be against you. I am on your side. I'm here to deliver a message that is going to help you. I'm not like the other three. I'm not going to tear you down. I'm here to build you up. Trust me. And don't be afraid. Then in verse 8 through 11, uh, getting specific. So Elihu is about to correct Job. He's going to bring a, a rebuke. But he's going to engage Job fairly. So he's going to bring a few examples of what Job said, and then he's going to respond to him. Now, anybody that's, that's been through premarital counseling with me know, knows that we usually get to one of these exercises called active listening. Okay? So this is where one partner says something, and before the other person can say anything else, they have to repeat what the first person said, and then say, did I get it right? So if one person says, I'd, I'd like to take at least one vacation in the year, or I'd, I'd like to at least three children when, you know, after we start a family, the other person says, so what I'm hearing you say is, you'd like to take at least one family vacation a year. Is that correct? And the other person can either say, yes, that's what I said, or no, 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 you misunderstood me. Active listening. That's what Job is, or that's what Elihu is doing with Job. Elihu is saying, this is what I heard you say. You said, I am pure, without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. And this is true. Job had claimed to be clean and in the right, not having done anything to deserve his suffering. Here's Job 9.15, though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. Job 9.20, though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. And then Job 10, although you know that this is speaking to God, addressing God, although you know that I am not guilty. So Elihu starts off and saying, I heard that. That's one thing I heard you say. I also heard you say that you thought God counted you as, as his enemy. And this is also true. Job 13, 24. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? So, so far he's doing really good at this active listening thing. And then finally, Elihu quotes Job in order to fairly represent him. Verse 11. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Did Job say that? Yes. Job 13, 27. You put my feet in the stocks and you watch all my paths. Word for word. Job had indeed said that. He was saying that God had treated him like an enemy and that he is treating him like a prisoner and he was watching him all the time. Yes, he was under constant guard. So Elihu has fairly quoted Job. He's done a really good job with his active listening exercise and he can summarize it by saying, Job, you, you did believe you were in the right, 
and you believe that God had treated you unfairly. That's what I heard. That's what you said, Job. And then in verse 12, Behold, in this you are not right. So after fairly represented him, he comes with the word of rebuke and says, You are wrong. That's not it. That's not it. You are not right to place yourself in, in the right and accuse God of treating you unjustly and unfairly. And, and, jo, and Elihu is basically saying, look, none of those other three um, had the wherewithal or the, the willingness or the ability to give it to you straight, but I am going to give it to you straight, Job. And what I'm telling you, you is you're getting it wrong here. You, you crossed a line. You've forgotten that God is God and that you're not. God's up here and the created creature is down here. God is greater than man. God is greater than man. That's the, if we want to put that over the, the, the banner, over everything else Elihu has to say, it's God is greater than man. And he's going to develop that a little bit. If you remember back in your uh, high school English days, you remember when the teacher asked you to rewrite a report and they wanted to teach you how to formally go through all the steps so you had to collect all these sources and write them on note cards and you had to get one from a, a book and one from a, maybe a newspaper and one from a, a magazine article and then the next stage was to write an outline and so Roman numerals were the big headings and then underneath those were the capital letters Roman number one, capital letter A, B, C, D, E so Roman number one is God is greater than man and then Elihu is going to develop underneath those A, B, C. A is going to be God is not silent. Okay? So God is greater than man, Roman numeral number one, capital letter A, God is not silent. Verse 13, why do you contend, contend against him? He will answer none of man's words. Job was complaining that God would not show up. Remember, several points during his speeches, he wanted God to show up and give an answer for why he was laying on all this suffering onto a righteous man. It didn't seem right to Job, so he was calling on God to speak. And in Job's mind, at least, God was not speaking. Elihu is saying, yes, he does. Verse 14, for God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it, so he's telling Job, yes, God does speak, you just weren't listening. The first way God speaks is through dreams, 15 through 18. In a vision of the night, deep sleep falls on men. When they slumber on their beds, he opens their ears and terrifies them with warnings. So we've got four words or phrases that all mean essentially the same thing. Dream, vision of the night, deep slumber, uh, deep sleep and slumber. Why dreams? Why, why at night? Why does God choose that time? Perhaps one of the reasons is because he has our attention at night. We're not running around at night. We're not at work at night. We're not thinking about all the things we have to do. We don't, we're not in, wrapped up in our go, 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 fast-paced, modern life at night. We're asleep. We're shut down. Our mind is not actively thinking about anything. We are not voluntarily tasking our mind with thinking about anything. So God has our attention. Why does God speak in this way towards people? It tells us in verse 17 and 18 that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride 
from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. So God does this, speaks to, to people through dreams to turn us aside from evil, to get our attention, to lead us to repentance. So a terrifying dream from God is ultimately for our good. To conceal pride from a man, to keep people from becoming proud. People have a propensity to, to think that, that we are autonomous, we're, we're independent, we, we only have to answer to ourselves. Uh, human nature, if left to itself, will, will sometimes completely ignore the existence of the spiritual realm. We, we get so focused on the here and now that we, we just don't think about uh, heaven and hell and God and Satan and, and judgment. But when God visits someone with a dream or a terror, it's designed to serve as a wake-up call. It breaks through our thick, calloused heart, and it causes us to remember that God is God, and we are not. A terrifying dream kind of jolts us out of our, our ease and complacency. We're, we're, we're awakened to the fact that, oh yeah, there's this spiritual realm that I have no control over. It says he keeps back his soul from the pit, meaning the grave or death, spiritual death, his life from perishing by the sword. Sword. God warns us in order to keep us from being cut off, cut off from this life and cut off ultimately from eternal life. He breaks through our pride to bring us to repentance. So God speaks. God does speak, but do we listen? I'm not saying that every time we have a nightmare or a terrifying dream, that that means as soon as we wake up, we need to spend our time focusing on where in our life we're sinning and we, have, we, we can't rest until we find out what's wrong in our life and what we've done. Sometimes we just have a bad dream. I am saying that dreams are one of the valid biblical ways that God can and does use to get people's attention. There are numerous Old Testament and New Testament examples of God using dreams to speak to people and to get their attention. So we shouldn't just write it off. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if, if someone here told me, yeah, I've experienced this. Job has experienced this. Job 7, 13 and 14. When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. Job experienced this. So as Elihu is trying to, to correct Job and say, no, God does speak, and here's one way he speaks, through terrifying dreams and visions, Job is listening and he's putting two and two together and says, oh, oh, he was speaking, but I just didn't listen. That's one way. Another way, God speaks through physical pain and sickness. Verses 19 through 22. This is another way God speaks. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed, with continual strife in his bones. And then more language that talks about physical suffering. Loses his appetite, flesh wastes away. His soul draws near the pit. This is describing someone who's so sick that they're near the point of death. God uses physical pain to get our attention. To bring us to repentance. Or to deliver a rebuke. 
This is one of the ways that God speaks to us. C.S. Lewis, uh, a Christian writer, said this, the human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. There's nothing like a good old sickness or injury to bring us back to reality, to remind us of our mortality, to to remind us that we're not invincible, that death comes to all at some point. And when we're weakened or in pain or diseased, our minds are more likely to look outside of ourselves and to ask the questions like, why did this happen? Or why am I in pain? Or to look for deliverance or answers. So God speaks, but do we listen when these things happen? Now, once again, I'm not saying that every time we get sick or every time we have an injury, that's a warning from God to turn aside from some evil and we can't rest until we find out what's wrong with our life. Sometimes we just get hurt or sometimes we just get sick. But I am saying that sickness and injury are biblical ways in which God uses to get someone's attention or to speak to us. He uses physical pain and illness. And once again, I know this happens, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's somebody here that it's happened to or that it is happening to. These things are tools at God's disposal, and he uses them to get our attention. And just like Uh, He gets our attention, he got Job's attention. God sent physical pain and suffering on Job. Once again, Job is listening to Elihu. The charge was, God God is silent, he's not speaking to me. Elihu says these things, Job's putting them together. Oh. Remember, Job is still suffering. Loathsome sores from the foot to his head. Continual excruciating pain. He can't find relief. He can't get comfortable. There's no position. Sitting, standing, lying down. Where all of a sudden the pain goes away. It's continual. God was speaking. Before we go to 23 through 28, which is the mediator passage, the picture of Jesus, I want to see the purpose of these extreme measures, and I want us to see the pattern. There is, there's a larger pattern within these sections of, of 33. Look at 14 through 16, God speaks through dreams and terrifying visions. And then 17 and 18, for the purpose of saving the person. And then we move to the next section, 19 through 22, God speaks through physical pain and sickness. And then 23 through 28, for the purpose of saving the person. It's important to capture that and to see that. That's a, a cycle. There's... there's Discipline, deliverance. Discipline, deliverance. A pattern. A cycle. And later on, Elihu is is going to say that God can use that multiple times to get people's attention. God will keep the pressure on. He'll, He'll give us one cycle after the next until we turn back to him. So there's that that pattern. We can't miss that. Now let's look at 23 through 28, our mediator. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, there's been all kinds of suggestions as to who this mediator is in Job 33. Some have said an angel, simply an angel, one of many. Some have said a person, maybe some kind of human deliverer. Someone maybe has said a close friend, like maybe Elihu himself. 
uh, maybe a prophet, and then of course maybe the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ. Well, which is it? Who is this angel mediator? I think the text in the immediate context tells us, it says, if there be for him an angel, and then it says one of the thousands. So some have suggested that this angel is just a general angel. And the ESV translation here makes it sound like that might be the case when it says one of the thousand. One of the thousand. So the idea that that communicates is, oh, okay, this angelic mediator is one of the thousand. This is one angel that's part of, part of a larger group of angels. So it's just one of the angels. But the ESV is the only major translation to translate that phrase as one of the thousand. All other major translations, NIV, KJV, NASB, ASV, NET, and several others, translate the phrase with ending with a thousand. Okay, So one is definite, the thousand, one is indefinite, a thousand. I'm not going to bore you with the technical details, but there is no definite marker on thousands. So the correct translation is, I think with the majority of the translations, not the thousand, but a thousand. So now we have something that's translated as one, of, uh, one out of a thousand or one among a thousand. And the meaning becomes much more clear. This isn't one angel that's part of a larger group of angels. Instead, it's one of a thousand, or excuse me, one out of a thousand. One out of a thousand. Now, what is, how do we need to understand that phrase? Again, scripture interprets scripture. Let's look back at Job 3, how that phrase has been used earlier. It says in Job 9.3, if one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. This is, this is Job saying, it would be foolish to go up against God in a one-on-one -on -one argument. It would be foolish to, to approach God and contend with him because the chances of success are so slim, it would be like one in a thousand. This would be similar to our phrase today, one in a million. One in a million. If someone says one in a million today, they mean it's so remote, it's so unlikely. The chances of whatever it is you're having to talk about uh, basically don't even exist. That's how rare it is. I remember watching uh, a young man one time that was reading note cards, one of these three by five note cards, and he was reading them, and after he was done, he was flipping them off behind him and just twirling them off, not even looking, just read, flip off, read, flip off. And he did that several times, but he got to one card, he read it, he flipped it off, and in back of him, about three or four feet, was a banquet table that had uh, just a flat laminate top, but there was a, 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 like a bumper or an edging that went around the table and it had this ever so slight of a gap in between the edging and the table. He flipped it off, it twirled through the air, and it landed on its edge and stuck in between that gap. It was barely big enough for the car to even fit in. That's one in a million. I would imagine you could do that all day and not repeat that. I can't believe I saw it, I witnessed it, but it did happen. That's the meaning of 3323. This angel is one in a thousand. Elihu means that this angel is so unique, so special, so exclusive, so matchless, that it can only be the angel of the Lord or Jesus Christ. And the rest of the text confirms this. A mediator. Elihu's talking about a mediator. Now we know Elihu has been listening because that's what Job has been asking for the whole time. 
Job 16, 19, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. Job 9, 33, There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Job 19, 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Job has been longing for someone to represent him, to act as that mediator, that buffer zone between him and his God. The one who could secure his salvation by securing favor with God on his behalf. Now Elihu is saying, you were right, Job, to ask for an arbiter, a mediator who would stand between you and God. I know him and I will tell you who it is. Verses 23 and 24, this unique angel mediator declares to man what is right and acts mercifully toward him. In 24, this unique angel speaks to God on man's behalf and says, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. This mediator has the authority to deliver people to death. Why? Because he's found a ransom, and the ransom is himself. His own blood shed on the cross, which God the Father accepts as as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the guilty one. Verse 25, the one who has been ransomed and redeemed by the blood of the mediator is immediately raised to newness of life and at the Lord's return will be physically raised, given a new glorified imperishable body with new flesh and youthful vigor restored. This is a picture of the resurrection. It's also a picture and a foreshadowing of Job's restoration. Remember what happens in 42? He's restored. His flesh is made like new. His his youthful vigor returns. His body is healed. Verse 26, Then the man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face and with a shout of joy he restores to man his righteousness. The one restored and redeemed uh, prays to God and God accepts his prayer. That's a sign of a restored relationship. God's not, not listening to him or not granting his prayer. He's listening. That means they're in a right relationship. Restored. God becomes a source of joy and the object of our worship and praise. Why? Because he has justified us. He's declared us righteous. Verse 27 and 28, the saving work of God is made known to others. He sings before me and says, listen to this, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. This is the confession of every single believer. This is our story. We have sinned and have perverted what is right. And by the grace of God, it is not repaid to us. God does not treat us according to our sins. God does not visit us according to our iniquities. Instead, in his grace, we are forgiven because of the mediator, Jesus Christ. We've all sinned grievously over and over before a holy God. And in Christ, he has not dealt with us according to our sins. Instead, he has redeemed us. He has purchased us. He has lifted us up, forgiven us our sin, and given us new light and life. This is all through faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot do this. We we cannot make ourselves right with God. No amount of good deeds, no amount of wishing that it could happen, no amount of, of trying to live rightly before God. We cannot ransom ourselves. Psalm 49.7, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. We need a unique divine mediator. We need someone to stand between us and God 
in order for us to be made right with God. We need someone to pay the ransom price for our life, and that person is Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This chapter is pointing us to Jesus Christ, the mediator. If you have not believed on Jesus Christ, if you have not trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins, God extends a real invitation. If you confess your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That is the promise of Scripture. In 29 through 30, we go to the cycles of extreme measures. Behold, God does all these things. Discipline, deliver, discipline, deliver. Twice, three times with a man to bring him back, to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. The purpose of God using these tools, these extreme measures, terrifying dreams, wake-up calls, uh, injuries, illness, sickness, disease, the reason God uses these extreme measures is to bring people back from the pit and to give them the light and life that is only found in Jesus Christ. Not just once or twice, but over and over again. God will engage his discipline, discipline delivering cycle as often as needed. He will throw extreme measures at us until we have learned the lesson he is teaching us. Until his work in that area in our life is complete. Verses 31 through 33, this is kind of the wrap-up of the chapter. Remember at the beginning of verse 5 where he said, Answer me if you can. This was Elihu's way of saying, When I'm done, Job, if you take issue with anything I've told you, if you think I've, if I've made a mistake here, go ahead. I invite your response. Point out whatever it is that I, did, that I didn't say correctly. So verses 31 and 33 are reissuing that invitation. Pay attention, O Job, listen to me, be silent, and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me, speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me, be silent, and I will teach your wisdom. And what happens? Job is silent. Job saying, yeah, yeah, no, I, uh, no, I'm, I'm done. You're right. God does speak. He spoke to me, and I wasn't listening. Extreme measures. If we had to summarize chapter 33, we would say this. Elihu formally begins his address to Job by putting Job at ease, using disarming language, and showing Job that he has listened carefully to what Job had to say. Elihu then corrects Job by reminding him that God is greater than man. Elihu asserts that God does speak to his people through dreams and suffering, through multiple cycles of discipline and delivering, in order to bring his people back to a point of repentance and turning from sin, and without the mediator, Jesus Christ, none of us would be saved from going down into the pit. The takeaway for us as the Church of Jesus Christ would be something like this. God loves his people so much that he has and will take extreme measures in order to get our attention and to get us to turn back from our sin. So the question we might ask ourselves after looking at this chapter of Scripture would be, have we had a terrifying dream lately? 
Has God sent some sort of physical injury or sickness into your life? Maybe God is speaking to you. If so, what is God trying to say? What is God trying to teach you? How is God speaking to you through that experience? Let's, let's use the, the scripture as, as a grounding point for this application. Is God dealing with a pride issue? Because that's what the problem was with Job. He was this great man who lived as righteously as humanly possible. So he And he knew that. He was aware that as, as far as humanly uh, possible, he was living correctly before God. But when the time of testing came, he crossed the line. And he suggested that, that God had to defend himself. That God may have acted unjustly towards him. And here's the thing. Job did not realize that he had crossed the line. He did not see his own pride, which is characteristic of the sin of pride. If you're experiencing extreme measures, consider the possibility that God might be reminding you that he's in charge and not you, that he is the one who brought you this far, not your own ability or your own intelligence or skill set or strength, Pride can lead us to think that God has opened a few doors for us, but whoa boy, we're the ones that have really made it happen. God, God opened a few key points, a few, few juncture points along the way, but it, it's us. We're the ones that sacrificed, we're the ones that have toiled, and in our prideful hearts we give ourselves some of the credit for what we've become, or who we are, or how we've built our little kingdoms. And so God goes to extreme measures to teach us and to speak to us. God is greater than man. So one of, the, one of the questions that we can ask ourselves is God dealing with a pride issue? If we're going through some of these extreme measures, is God dealing with a pride issue in our life? That's, that's something we can consider. But then, how about this? Maybe you have extreme measures going on in your life. Maybe it's not pride that, that you can't see until God reveals it. Maybe it is something you see. Maybe it's known sin. Maybe for whatever reason you've been, you've been keeping Jesus at arm's length in a particular area in your life. You've put off dealing with something that you know needs to be dealt with. So if we need to ask ourselves, if God performed an audit of our life right now, would anything turn up? Would there be any red flags? Is there anything occupying first place in our life that shouldn't be in the first place position? Something we regard and that we love and that our heart has affection for more than God? Or maybe an interpersonal issue? Is there someone in your life that you're not treating with, with the respect that you should be or with Christ-like love? Or maybe our, our TV and, and internet content? What are we consuming on a regular basis? How well do we utilize our spiritual gifts in Christ's church? How are we managing and stewarding the time that God has given us, this finite amount of time that we have in this life? And it could be that you're trying to convince yourself right now that the extreme measures that you're experiencing and this thing that needs to be dealt with in your life, they're not related. Just a coincidence that I happen to have something in my life that I'm not dealing with and I'm also going through these extreme measures. So you try to talk yourself out of it. But God's speaking. 
Are we listening or are we attempting to maybe ignore the message God's sending us? I'm going to close with this uh, illustration. You know, you know how when two people are have had an argument, there there's two people in, in some kind of relationship, and they've had an argument, and, and things have, have gone bad, but then they've taken steps to to restore the relationship. Maybe something's been done to um, to to make things right and uh, to to kind of fix things, and they're at that point where they're ready to move on. So so. Sometimes people will ask this question. They'll get to that point and they'll say, all right, well, um, I'm good. I'm good. You good? And the other person will say, yeah. Yeah, I'm good. And that, that means that we're, we're okay. We're ready to move on in our relationship. We don't have to spend any more time on this. Let's, let's just keep going like we, we were before. But sometimes one person is ready to move on and the other person isn't. Sometimes one person uh, feels like the situation's been, been rectified, uh, they, they've taken steps, it's, it's a result to their satisfaction, but not to the other person's. And then the conversation goes a little differently. They say, you know, I think I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Are you good? And the other person has to say, no. No, I'm not good. Not yet. When God sends extreme measures into our life, it's God's way of saying to us, things are not good. Things are not right. Now, I'm not talking about positionally. I'm not talking about our salvation. It is impossible once someone is saved, once someone is regenerated by the Holy Spirit to lose their salvation. I'm not saying that if we do something, God breaks us off and throws us away. Jesus in in Scripture says, I am the shepherd, my people are the sheep. And in John, he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. There There is no way we can lose our salvation. But it is possible to interrupt to, to, to disrupt the relationship. It is possible to grieve the Holy Spirit, is what Scripture calls it. Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is within the context of Paul issuing several commands to the church, both uh, commands proactively to do things, certain things that should be done, and also prohibitions, things you shouldn't do. In the context of these commands, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And what he means is, by sinning. By, by sinning, we're, we're disrupting that relationship that we have with God. Do not cause grief or distress or sorrow to God the Holy Spirit through sin. God loves us so much that he is willing to go to extreme measures in order to call us back, in order to send wake-up calls and remind us of who he is and who we are in our relationship with us. He, he loves us so much that he will go to these extreme measures to, to help us turn back from sin. So it's his way of saying, no, things aren't right right now. I need you to turn around. When God sends these extreme measures into our life, it's his way of saying things are not good. If God sends extreme measures into your life, listen and respond. Repent and believe. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, first of all, for securing our salvation. Uh, We need that rock-solid assurance that once in Christ, always in Christ. We need to understand and and know, we need to be able to depend on that rock of 
of the assurance of, of having a secure salvation finished and perfected by our great high priest, Jesus Christ. But Father, we also acknowledge that your, your word tells us that it is possible to grieve your Holy Spirit. It is possible to have a, a disruption, a break in that, that personal relationship through, through ongoing sin. Father, the last thing we want is to, to have things not be right between us and our relationship. Lord, help us not to write off extreme measures. Help us to listen when you speak to us, when you, when you send things into our life. We acknowledge that there are no coincidences because of your providence. Father, help us to listen and respond. Help us to repent and believe when you lovingly send extreme measures into our life. Amen.